taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Ronan, Montana and Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and we're going to start off with the word of the Lord, this one coming from Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26, which says, But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hey, 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 everyone. I'm glad to have you aboard here. Um, this is uh, kind of entering into the season here where, where we're uh, we're asking at Bellator Christie for you people to take the material that, that we have out there and actually engage with, with, the, with the community and the people around you. Um, be intentional about it. This is a season where, where maybe uh, people are a little more sensitive or a little more willing to listen or to um, actually ask questions and engage, um, you know, I, I suggest be prepared to give an answer for, you know, the virgin birth. Um, why, why the season, why the star, why the, why the magi, why, why all of this story that comes together? Why, why is it important? And, and why, uh, where, where does it lead from this point? Um, this is big stuff. We're talking about, you know, the the Lord of Lords, the God that created the universe, actually engaged with his creation and came here, came to earth, came came in in a in a in a humble state as a baby. Think about that. This the the Lord, the God of heaven actually came as a baby, had to have his diaper changed had to have his face washed when he was a little toddler had to be had to have these things just like any other child in this world had to learn how to had to learn how to walk how to learn had to learn how to you know to engage and to to eat and to to drink and to do these things and if we just stop and pause and think about that there are people out there that may want to know why we believe what we believe and we can engage with that. There's information on the website. We had some great uh, podcasts um, last year and the year before where we talked about St. Nicholas. We talked about some of these other things. Um, also about the season, the time of it, you know, and what it all means, the advent, um, all of these things. So so engage, look it up, um, start. Uh, um, you can even print off those. Uh, if there's an article, you can print them off so you can actually have conversation. But uh, let's go ahead and get in with Brian. Hello, Brian. Hello, Curtis. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing good. Got my festive coffee cup here, so we're good to go. Well, I've got my uh, Chick-fil-A cup (laughs) 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 from this morning. So Your Jesus chicken? That's right. It's heaven's chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Yeah. They keep saying that we're going to get a Chick-fil-A in in Missoula, but I, eh, who knows? I doubt it. <laughs> Something will come up, you know. Well, I have to say, in all honesty, I've been very impressed uh, with 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 how Chick-fil-A is able to get a mass volume of people who come to the restaurant and are able to get them out fairly quickly. I mean, my goodness, if, if the federal government run like Chick-fil-A, I mean, we would have things coming out left and right. We wouldn't have any waiting whatsoever. Uh, I thought we weren't a political podcast. No, that's not political. I was just talking about both sides. <laughs> that's just an observation. That's an observation for both sides. And yeah. I, I dare say most governmental yeah. workers would tell you the same thing. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Uh, it's like a road, constru- like a State Department road construction crew. You got six people standing there watching one guy work. <laughs> That's about right. So, with Chick Fil A, you got both lanes open. They're they're churning them through. How they do that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a it's a Christmas miracle. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we had a uh, we had a um, a reply or some uh, I guess a a, a listener um, interacted with us from the last podcast. You want to go ahead and. Uh, Talk about that. Yeah, and by the way, I, I do want to remind everybody that at the bottom of all of our articles and uh, and on our podcast on the website now, uh, we don't get the information if there was to be something on the podcasting apps. But if uh, if you're going to Bellator Christie and you see uh, any of the podcasts, any of the articles, there's an option for you to uh, down at the very bottom of the screen. Uh, to to comment, uh, to leave your comment, leave a question, leave a reply, and uh, we encourage people to do that. Now we do have uh, certain standards that we, that, certain uh, community standards that we operate by um, mm-hmm. on the website. So I mean, you can go to Bellator Christie and look that up. There's there's a page that has uh, the the comment commenting. Um, uh, the community rules, I guess you'd say, and it's essentially just be just be charitable to one another. That's that's one of the biggest things on there. And uh, but anyhow, uh, there's a gentleman who writes uh, in response to the last uh, podcast we did. Does two thousand years of Jews rejecting the Christian interpretation of those Old Testament texts provide today's skeptic with reasonable justification to ignore them? So let's first of all take the first question. Curtis, you gave a response, and uh, would you like to answer that first part? Yeah, yeah, I did. And um, to that first question, I said, uh, to give the short answer, no. Um, It doesn't provide skeptics with a reasonable justification. And then I went in and I said, so so now for a little more depth in the answer, most of the Old Testament messianic prophecies that Christians hold and understand as solid prophecies are ones that are backed by Jewish and Christian scholars alike. Absolutely. I think you're dead on the money. Um, if, if there was one thing I would add to this, we have to understand that before the days of Rabbi Rashi, which were like in the 1400s or something like that, uh, early rabbinic interpreters uh, held very high messianic interpretations to these scriptures. Uh, in fact, some of those interpretations are, were eerily similar to Christian interpretations to some degree. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you can say that, uh, that the 2,000 years of Jews rejecting the Christian interpretation of those texts um, I don't think that that's necessarily fair because, remember, Jesus and the early church, they were, in fact, Jewish. Nicodemus, Joseph mm-hmm. of Arimathea, there were many in the Sanhedrin, not all, obviously, but there were there were some individuals in the Sanhedrin who became Christ followers. So I don't think that that's true. Uh, you, know, you have Messianic Jews, even to this day, Jewish individuals who uh, have received uh, Christ or Yeshua, uh, and uh, have become followers of Yeshua. So mm-hmm. I don't think you can make an overgeneralized statement. And Curtis, I think you did a great job answering that. The second, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say the, the the big thing is is a lot of people maybe misunderstand that Christianity is not opposed or um, opposite to the Jewish faith. We absolutely. Christianity is birthed out of the Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. If if we look and think about that a little bit more critically, we understand that we are um we are we are following a Jewish rabbi that grew up in a Jewish culture culture that knew all of these things as he was walking through with his ministry. Absolutely. Yeah. The second question. Yeah, he goes on to say, not all Christians interpret Old Testament messianic prophecies as referring to Jesus. So even if, uh, or if even presumably spiritually alive people cannot agree on what such a text mean, such text mean, isn't it clear that it is foolish to expect spiritually dead skeptics to have a more accurate understanding? Yeah, so I went in on this one, and I said, uh, "I said, uh, any prophecy that is messianic is a prophecy about the Messiah. That is what that word means. 
So those that look at Jesus as the Savior would also say the Messiah is salvation. In John 8, Jesus made many I am statements to those in the crowd questioning him. And those I am statements got the religious Jewish crowd so upset that they tried to kill him at that point. They knew what he was claiming and that he, that he is the Messiah and he is the I am. Very well said. Just to add one one additional statement to that, I think we also need to allow the text to speak for itself. Um, I think we have to, you know, we, we've spoken before about reader response theories of interpretation and then uh, authorial intent, you know, allowing a text to speak mm-hmm. for itself. I think looking at the context of, of of the of the text now some some messianic prophecies as we mentioned were typologies and some of them as we're going to see today they paint uh, portraits of of Jesus or, or of the Messiah that collaboratively together uh, can be shown to point to uh, the Messiah um, there mm-hmm. are more implicit in, in interpret uh, uh, prophecies and there are more explicit prophecies. Um, but as such, if you're allowing the text and you and you then let's just be honest, some people don't accept messianic prophecies because either they're placing so much emphasis on history that they say, well, this can't be talking about a Messiah, even though early rabbinic you know under, people understood it that way, and even early Christians did as well. Um, or there may be some people who have uh, problems with with prophecy itself. Well, those are presuppositions that are placed on the text rather than allowing this text to speak for itself. So I think mm-hmm. if you're open to the possibility of prophecy, you're open to the, these possibilities, and you allow the text to speak for itself, uh, and you look into the interpretations even that that people had at the time, uh, I think that the evidence weighs more in favor for uh, messianic interpretations in these texts. True. Yep. So the third question... Yeah, is there a reason skeptics should care? <laughs> now, here's where we go. All right. Uh, is there a reason skeptics should care, given that the New Testament doctrine of eternal conscious torment contradicts the Old Testament sense of God's justice? Now, I don't know where that's coming from. And therefore, there is no danger, quote-unquote, in rejecting the gospel except the fate that atheists already accept, annihilation of consciousness. Hear what he means. Uh, if I'm understanding correctly, that everyone dies at death and then ceases to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my response was, uh, my response was, there are many reasons a skeptic should care. If the skeptic was being honest in their search and actually doing a careful study of the Old Testament and New Testament, they would see that there's no contradiction between the two. In fact, there's one person in the New Testament that can verify what was stated in the Old Testament. And that person is Jesus. So I asked asked him, so what did Jesus teach and speak on during his time in ministry? Very well said. I think there's also something we can do from a philosophical aspect, and that's turn the question on itself. Mm-hmm. Let's allow the question to be open and, and cover all avenues. Okay, so... He's saying that the, the, the view of conscious eternal torment goes against divine justice. But what does that do with the annihilation of consciousness? Now, we've already shown in previous podcasts uh, why there are good reasons for believing in an immaterial soul. In fact, I'm going through a book by uh, Richard Swanberg. <laughs> it's a small book, but it is dense. This is Dense as an oak tree. Uh, are we bodies or souls? And he's going through, you know, giving re- good reasons for why we have an immaterial portion of ourselves. So anyhow, long story short, we we have this immaterial side of us. But what does that say of, of justice if, you know, let's be honest, there are many criminals out there who get away with murders, who get away with rapes, who get away with all types of injustices. What does that say for the problem of evil if we just all simply die and there is no retribution mm-hmm. in the end. I think that is far worse 
than holding that uh, that God, who loves all people, wants to bring them to repentance, seeks out to save individuals, but you know honors the freedom of individuals to respond or reject. Uh, it's that person's rejection that sends a person to hell. Uh, to that conscious eternal torment. So I see there, I see no problem there with uh, divine justice in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, the other, the other thing is like we talked um, a little earlier. I, my my uh, my concern is my concern is if you get almost go into Pascal's wager, kind of almost with yeah, this. That's a good point. If if. If we are, if I'm right, then 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 he's forever lost. Mm-hmm. If he's right, what have I lost? That's very true. You know, and, and I don't want to get into that kind of idea, but but it, it's it's a this is something that if if this is true, if if Christianity is true, which it is, if Jesus rose from the grave, which he did, these are the things that are are tangible holdable things if if they are true and i and i'm just playing to his side if they are true then what i'm saying is i'm concerned about this person absolutely i want him to seek this out with all of his heart with all of it and if he still chooses to walk away from it i understand there's nothing i can do about that but if you've given it an honest look and you've really sought it after it, I think you'll find the truth right in the words of the of the scriptures. Amen, brother. And it's, and it's interesting because uh, what you just said fits really well with the whole story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, where you know Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark tells us Jesus loved that man. You know, um, mm-hmm. he wanted to see him. Sa- you know, wanted to see him come join the disciples, um, but the the man refused. And went his way, and Jesus allowed him to go. You know, um, that's I think that's love. <laughs> I think that's love. Mm-hmm. On, you know, both sides. You know, desiring to bring people in, but respecting the freedom to reject. You know, mm-hmm. and that's why I'm not a Calvinist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't get me started. <laughs> we, got, we got more podcasts on that later on in this in this uh, history of future history of of Bella Christie. So I'm I'm Absolutely. afraid that we can't touch. We can't touch on that secret subject at this moment. <laughs> so we're yes, going to get season into season six is looming around the corner. Be here before you know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, so we're going to get into the second podcast of this of this little mini series, you could say, of messianic prophecies. Um, and we're going to go into the messianic prophecies in Job and in Psalms. Let's go ahead and start with the first one. Um, how do we see the Messiah in Job 16, ni- verses 19 through 21? So l- let me pause here just for a moment and go back to something we talked about in our first podcast, about how there are literal promises or literal prophecies. Uh, you see that in this in Daniel's 70-week prophecy, where he's talking about the time frame that the Messiah would come. Um mm-hmm. I would even dare say that Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium that we were talking about, um, would probably be an explicit promise you know, for a future, for a future Messiah. Some of these things that we're going to see in the poetry section are really more, though, of the typologies that are implied, and maybe even some of the shadows. I think if, if you were looking at the most explicit, you'd have those literal prophecies, those literal promises mm-hmm. given. But those are fewer... Uh, the typologies are kind of in the middle. They are typologically casting what the Messiah would do. Uh, those, those are probably more numerous, and I think even more numerous still are the shadows, uh, th- those hints that you would have of uh, of of the Messiah. And you know, it's really kind of a shadowy scene there. But anyhow, uh, I think that in the poetry section, you're, you're finding more of the the typologies. Of what the Messiah would do. So, and but some of these even still, it's like the passage of scripture we read at the outset of the podcast. There is still a tinge of that that uh, literal prophecy to come as as he. And we're going to read that here in just a few few moments. But starting off with Job sixteen, let me first of all preface this even back to Job nine thirty three. 
Job responds to Bildad's first speech here, and he longs for someone to uh, arbitrate in the word there is mokaya, or an older translation calls him a daysman between him and God. This is calling for someone who has the authority to represent him before the Father. Okay, now we go to uh, Job 16, 19-21. Job makes an appeal to heaven, and he is confident that someone uh, can call my witness in heaven. And he goes on to say, he says, Even now my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is in the heights. So he's calling for someone to be his advocate here. And my friends scoff at me as I weep before God. He says, mm-hmm. uh, and I wish that someone might argue for a man <laughs> with God, uh, just as anyone would would for a friend. For only a few years will pass before I go the way of no return. He's asking for someone to stand in the gap for him in heaven, speaking to the Father. And what does the New Testament tell us that Jesus serves mm-hmm. at the right hand of God? He is our advocate. He is our intercessor. Yes. And so this is an allusion to what the Messiah would do um, later on. And so, I mean, it's amazing when you stop to really consider that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think what's, what's important is we, is we see that um, this is something that, that um, is saying what the Messiah would do yes. and what he would be what he would be doing for us. Maybe not necessarily um, at that moment when the Messiah is on the, on the earth, but actually what he does in the kingdom um, as a kingdom ministry. Absolutely. Yeah. So number two, um, how does the mediator motif fit in Job 19, 23 through 27 and Job 33 through 23, uh, 23 through 28. So let's first go to Job 19, uh, 23 through 27. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's doing something similar here. So, so to put it in, in context with what's going on in the Scripture, Job has lost everything possible. He's lost his home. He's lost his family. He's even lost his health. He doesn't even know about Satan trying to step in and cause problems at the at the very beginning. He doesn't even know that at this point. But he, he's actually wanting to put God on trial for the things that, that, that has happened. And he's thinking kind of of a courtroom where he's wanting to put God on trial. And then and sometimes he thinks, well, maybe God's putting me on trial. Um and all the while, he's calling for this attorney. He's calling for this advocate, someone to appeal his case before the Father. And so here he goes in verses 23 through 27. He says, I wish that my words were written down, that they were recorded on a scroll, or they were inscribed in stone forever by an iron stylus and lead. Now here's where he comes in in verse 25. But I know that my Redeemer lives... And at the end, he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. If this is not a representation of resurrection... I don't know what is. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating. And so he says in verse 25, I know my Redeemer lives. And here is the word goel. Goel can refer to one who marries a childless widow to raise and preserve the family name of the deceased, uh, an avenger of blood, or one who buys back property of a relative. In Job's case, his defender needed to vindicate him in a court of law. And here I'm, I'm quoting from the Moody Handbook on Messianic Prophecy. It says, um, in Job's case, his defender needed to vindicate him in a court of law. Some scholars hold that the identification is either a living person, a divine being other than God, or God. So really, if you take a look at what is going on here, it's this divine being, this this one like the Son of Man that Daniel talks about later on, uh, who is given his case to the Father. And we see in verses 25 and 26, and, and by the way, um, 
which resource was it I was looking at? Uh, by the way, a lot of people, whenever they look at this, they wonder if this is an antemortem or postmortem. Antemortem is a redemption while yet alive, or a postmortem, a redemption after death. And all the early scholars, all the early interpreters held the latter view, which says that he would be redeemed after his death, pointing to resurrection at that point in time. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating when, when you consider that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you and you said that 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 word is goel. Um, as soon as you said that, um, anybody who's gone through the scriptures will will pick it out. We'll go straight to the book of Ruth, and we'll and we'll start yeah. thinking about Ruth and Boaz. And and what is what is uh, what does Naomi say to Ruth? She says, "He's my go. He's our Goel. He's he's our next of kin. He's the next one. He's the one that can buy us. He's not only can he um, does he own the field, but he also um, you know or can buy the field. But he's also our our next of kin, our next relative." Wow. They said something here, and that's absolutely right. They point to the Ruth passage of Scripture in the Moody Handbook on uh, Messianic Prophecies. They actually point to that passage of Scripture as well. But but here, here's something they add that I think is really interesting, especially here at Christmas time. And, and I quote, this is on page 440. It, said, it is said that George Frederick Handel composed his Messiah in 24 days. A servant interrupted him as he was writing the Hallelujah Chorus and found Handel weeping profusely. When asked the reason, Handel replied, I think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. Is it any wonder that the resurrection passage that immediately follows the Hallelujah Chorus is opened with, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And isn't that amazing? You know, because this is pointing to that day and I believe that there's even some hint here of, uh, maybe not explicit, but even some hint here of the intermediate state where there's something going on that he, he expects to see this redemption take place and that's happening in between the time of his death and this re- future resurrection. And uh, mm-hmm. But whether or not you can say there's an intermediate state or not, you can definitely... Uh, you can definitely say that there's resurrection going on in this passage mm-hmm. of Scripture. Yeah, and that's powerful because my mind, as soon as you said that, my mind went straight to straight to Ruth and how um, Boaz is being the picture of a, a type and shadow or a, I guess you could say, a picture of, a representation of what Jesus would be. Absolutely. And, and, and how... And how um, how he's he cares for her and takes her in and 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 provides and and so on so powerful stuff when we really start thinking about that and curtis kudos to you because you gave a great example of of a typology and really more even the shadow as as you see i mean it's not explicitly messianic with the story of Ruth and, and Boaz, but you see that comparison, and I think that was a good illustration of, of what you're looking more for when you t- talk a look, take a look at the, the shadow aspect of prophecy, and I think that was very well done. So then on um, in Job 33, verses 23 through 28, what, what do we have there? So here in this passage of Scripture, uh, one final time in the book, uh, Job longs for a mediator to intervene between him and his accusers. Now, here again, think about what is going on in Job's life. He had friends who were coming to comfort him. And remember what the Scripture says, they did a great job until they opened their mouth. Right. Yeah, right. right up until they said something. Thanks, fellas. The moment they started talking is, is when everything started going downhill. So, Three days of peace, huh? Yeah. <laughs> right, that's right. But there's this guy by the name of Elihu, and, and Elihu is the last commenter. And, you know, the Lord accuses the other three, if memory serves, but he doesn't necessarily say that what Elihu always, what he says is wrong, but, you know, Elihu's not 100% right. That's one of the cautions you need to use when reading the book of Job because his accusers are stating things that God comes back and says are not so. So you have to read it in the context of the entire story. So you don't want to take something that was that God said was wrong 
that one of the accusers said and say, well, hey, this is one such thing here. Uh, but anyhow, he, as he's responding to Elihu, he says in verse uh, 23 through 28, If there is an angel on his side, one mediator out of a thousand, to tell the person what is right for him, and be gracious to him and say, Spare him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Then his flesh will be healthier than in his youth, and he will return to the days of his youthful vigor. He will pray to God, and God will delight in him. That person will see his face with a shout of joy, and God will restore his righteousness to him. He will look at men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is what was right, yet I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and I will continue to see the light. And so... There's a lot we could talk about here, but obviously one of the biggest things messianically is to is the whole notion as he's been talking about throughout the entire book of of having a redeemer stand on in in heaven on his behalf, uh, appealing his case before the Father. Mm. Man, <laughs> and yeah, and so I mean, just just kind of thinking, uh, you know. Thinking about that, uh, when Stephen was being was being uh, killed or stoned by by Paul, what did he say? You know, he said he says, "I see, I see the Son of God. I see Jesus standing and greeting me." And that's only one of two places outside of the teachings of Jesus that you see this title, "Son of Man," used. Yeah. It's only yeah. outside of the teachings of Jesus that the Son of Man title is almost exclusively used by Jesus. Uh, the only two times you find it in the New Testament, from what I found uh, thus far, is in Stephen's statement, which is a sermon summary, which is an early sermon summary dating back before the composition of Acts. And you also mm-hmm. see it in a passage of Scripture in the book of Hebrews. Um those are the only two times outside of the Gospels that you see the title Son of Man used. Well, that is outside of Daniel, but talking about the New Testament is primarily almost exclusively used by Jesus of himself. Mm. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, there's some good stuff there, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's and that's one thing I really want people to understand in this is is we we love to see the jewish people come to christ amen and, and see the finalized portion of who jesus actually is and 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 realize that christianity is not it, it, christianity walks in step with judaism to we just believe that it it has finished we believe that we have the messiah that's why we're called Christians. That's why it, it's it's all revolving around the Christos, the Christ. Amen, brother. And, and so, you're right. And so many of the things that uh, I mean, man, you, you tempted me here. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's like the parable I'm going through with my dissertation studies. I, I found that there was there were some things in the parable of the compassionate employer that Jesus addresses implicitly. That um, is not compl- is not opposed to Judaism. Is he's actually doing some similar things that Jewish rabbis would do at the time, but of course he's taking a unique take on it as he normally does. Um, but there are some Jewish themes in that, um, and to know fully what that is, you know, my dissertation's got to pass the course, and and I've got to get it published, and you can find out. <laughs> yeah, have mm-hmm. a, little, a little teaser. Yeah. So, what psalms speak of the Messiah as a conquering king, brother? I tell you, I, we've got so much here. Uh, it's it's unbelievable. So, th- there are two psalms, and th- and there are many others we could talk about. I mean, and this is just limiting it to, um, just 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 skeletons you know the skeletal aspects of what's there there's a lot more than what we're covering but psalm 110 and this was even quoted by jesus and let me pull it up here uh this is and this is where i direct people um most time whenever uh trying to describe the the tetragrammaton the the personal name of god 
which is in all caps. And I direct him to Psalm 110, which says, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Okay, And Jesus quotes this, and he even attributes it to David in the New Testament. But he says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever. Now, wait a minute, catch that. You are a priest forever according to the order or pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Oh, my goodness. This is just chock full of, of meaty stuff that we could just spend all podcast on this one psalm alone. Um, mm. Let me just go over. Um, gosh, there's, where do we start? Well, let me, let me ask. Let me ask. Who was Melchizedek? All right, that's a good question. Yeah. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, or, or Shal- uh, uh, it was Salem, Salem, yep. which is a derivative of the word Shalom, uh, which is essentially Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem. Yep. He was the king yes. of Jerusalem, uh, the king of Salem. This yep. was a mysterious king. No one knew the origins of this person. This person mysteriously comes up. And he gives a blessing, a priestly, a kingly priestly blessing to Abraham in the book of mm-hmm. Genesis. And so this is a mysterious individual. We're not told much about him. And so essentially what this is saying is that the Messiah would, would mysteriously, I think you can make a point to say perhaps even mysteriously come about. You know, he wouldn't come of pomp and circumstance, but uh, he, he came, you know, in some senses mysteriously, from humble means, you may even say, uh, from that aspect. Now, you know, that's debatable, but there's but there are some things that we definitely see uh, that Messiah is would be a conquering king. He has four other characteristics, as uh, Walter Kaiser says. He will be a priest. He will be appointed by God. He will be an eternal office holder. Did you catch the fact that he said, you are a priest forever, not temporarily, an eternal priest, he goes on to say, and uniquely styled, not after the line of the high priest Aaron, but after a priest king, of the of ancient Jerusalem, Melchizedek. Now, now here is the weird thing, and, and Zechariah does this when we get to the minor prophets. Zechariah does this in classic Judaism. You had a king and you had a priest, but the but never the tw- twain should meet. Uh, a yep. king was a king and a priest was a priest. But here with Melchizedek, you have a strange combination of a priest king. In like manner, the Messiah would be priest-king, and this is further corroborated by the book of Zechariah, as we're going to get to. My Lord, we, we could probably develop this into a two-month po- you know, series if we wanted to, because there's just so much oh, yeah. in Zechariah. There's so much in Isaiah that we could talk about, and there's so much if, in this one psalm. I mean, we could spend the whole entire podcast on this one psalm alone, quite frankly. Let me give you an outline that uh, the uh, Messianic, uh, the uh, Moody Handbook on Messianic Prophecy gives. They say that in verses 1 through 3, you can see Messiah as the divine king. He's presented as the Lord in verse 1a, and 110 1a. He's presented at God's right hand in 1b. He's presented as uh, the Messiah awaits victory, 1c. D, the Messiah will rule in verses 2 through 3. And then we see Messiah the priest-king in verse 4. That's the second major separation. And there's subcategories. There's two. Um, One, the promise of God in verse 4a. Uh, The the office of Messiah in verse 4, the whole whole verse there. Um, 
and notice he says, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You know, the Lord is the one swearing an oath for this. He's the one appointing this priest king. And then the final major section, Messiah the victorious king in verses 5 through 7. And this is divided up into uh, two subsections. Uh, one, the defeated nations in verses 5 through 6, that every nation will be brought into subjugation into the authority of Messiah. And that includes the United States of America. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, I'm all for patriotism, but let's not put any nation over the nation of God because eventually the nation of Christ is going to overrule all nations in the end. And then in verse 7, the refreshed king, and this talks about the, the, the peacefulness that comes. I mean, notice that it notice this verse in verse seven, how it how it resembles Psalm twenty three. He will drink from the brook by the road, therefore he will lift up his head. Drinking by the brook by the road indicates that you don't have to worry about someone attacking you from behind. You're able to bend down and drink from a brook without worrying about someone uh, attacking you. That's the same imagery in Psalm twenty three, where the Lord is our shepherd. He leads right. us beside the still waters, and He's bringing us peace. So there's a connectiveness even between 110 and 23 in regards to the peace that Christ or the Messiah brings. My goodness, we're 40 minutes. And we just... <laughs> Verse... Well, I just was going to point out, I was just going to point out, Jesus, after, think about this, um, and, and I just want to point this out, we'll move on real quick, but I wanted to point this out, is Jesus in John uh, 20... After after the death and the burial, um, it was when he was resurrected. When Mary came to the tomb, what did he say to her when she when she saw him? She she saw him and she confused him as the gardener, right? Mm-hmm. But then he says, and then he says, Mary, and she spun and looked at him, right. And she and he and she must have come to come to him and it went to went to hold on to him or or to grab a hold of him. And what did he say? He says, don't cling to me, Mm -hmm. for I have not yet ascended to the father. Yeah, but go. Why would he say that unless there was a picture being painted of him being the high priest in his priestly clothes going to make the atonement with God. That's an excellent point. I think there's definitely something there. And I like that you that you brought out the point where he said, don't cling to me. Now some people, some translations will say, touch me not. But, but the real gist behind the language, it's not that Mary didn't touch him. It, the gist mm-hmm. is that she was clinging on to him so hard that he couldn't move, you know, uh, well, he could if he wanted to. I mean, he can disappear yeah. and reappear and <laughs> eat broiled fish at the same time. I mean, so, I mean, how cool is that? But at the same time, she's clinging on to him. And I think there is that motif there that he is the high priest going at the right hand of the Father. And, you know, this kind of came up on one of the last messages I brought Um that I had always wondered, why did Jesus need to necessarily ascend to the Father? Now, he could have just, you know, just went instantaneously. But I think there was a symbolism there about the fact, right. and pointing to what you said, that he was showing the disciples that he was going to the Father's right hand to serve as the advocate on behalf mm-hmm. of all people who come to him. Yeah, because... He he's the priest. He's the one that takes the prayers, and he's the one that uh, that intercedes for for his people. Yeah, powerful um, stuff. Ruler and priest, perfect priest, perfect mm. ruler. Mm. Yeah. Let, let me just briefly <laughs> mention Psalm two. Um, let me, let me go ahead and read it because I don't want to do injustice to this. Some of the other psalms we're probably not going to be able to read because they may be a little bit too long for us too. Uh, But uh, Psalm 2, I think we can definitely handle this. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage uh, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth will take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and His anointed one. Now here again, remember, and and this is something we've got to remember. And you see it in the teachings of Jesus. This has really come out in the teachings of Jesus as I've been studying for the dissertation. Uh, And we see this in the Psalms here. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire together. Against the Lord Yahweh and His anointed one, 
that anointed one, who is that? <laughs> That's Messiah. Let's tear off our chains and throw down the ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules mm-hmm. them. Is he being mean? No. He's just laughing like, what can you do to God? <laughs> Honestly. Mm-hmm. What can we do mm-hmm. to God? Uh, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them with him in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion. Zion is that spiritual heavenly Jerusalem. When we talk about the new heaven and the new earth, then Zion talks about Mount Zion, the holy place of God established on earth. Now, we know in Revelation there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's still that center, that capital city, New Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which is Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations, the nations, your inheritance. Uh, And the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. This is talking to every political ruler out there. Be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. And rejoice with trembling. Trembling, mm-hmm. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge, refuge in him are happy. Mm-hmm. This shows how every single nation will be brought into subjugation under the authority of King Jesus. Now, the four things Walter Kaiser says, uh, real, real, brief, real briefly I'll mention here, you see four things. Verses 1 through 3, the rebellion of the nations. Verses 4 through 6, the reaction of God. Uh, three, the re- response of Messiah in verses 7 through 9. And then lastly, the recommendation to the nations in verses 10 through 12. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And verse 9, verse 9 instantly makes me go back to uh, Jeremiah and Jeremiah's vision of, or as he's as he's walking by and sees the, the potter. Mm. Oh yeah, that's a oh wow, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Think about that. So so he sees the he sees the potter making this making this clay pot, and he and it's and it's spinning around, and it 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 you know it doesn't quite doesn't quite work right or doesn't quite do things. And it says dashed them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Mm. And this this is why this is one of the reasons why I really emphasized a long time ago when a lot of I mean and again I'm I'm not trying to speak badly or poorly about anyone else or anyone out there everyone needs to do as God's calling them to do or as they feel the Lord leading them to do but that's one of the reasons why I have tried not to put an overemphasis on politics because in the end and you're looking at the end game. Every nation will fall to the authority of Christ. And we see this in Philippians. We see this throughout the New Testament and Old Testament as well. When Christ Mm -hmm. returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so... And And it's not like said just once. No, yeah. It's it's said multiple times (laughs) in the Scripture. Now, now, do we need to be involved in our, in our in our communities? Do we need to be involved? Absolutely, be good citizens. Absolutely, but in game, that's what's coming about, and God doesn't lie. Titus one two tells us. So that's what we need to be looking towards, and the main mission needs to be getting the message out there that uh, Jesus is Lord and he wants to save people and and that the time is now for people to repent of their sins and come to him so that they can be saved by him because that day of grace is coming to an end. It will not always be here. One, we're all, it's appointed for all of us to die and stand before God. But two, at any moment, Christ can return. And when that happens... The age of grace will have passed into an age of judgment. Now, can people be saved during that time of tribulation? Yeah, I believe so, but it's going to be a whole a lot harder on individuals uh, in that time. I mean, it's going to get harder and harder as we go along throughout history, but it's really going to be difficult if you wait to that time. 
man. Man, you got that got me preaching. <laughs> hey. <laughs> so so the next three questions, we've really got to hustle through this. So <laughs> All right, let me which, take a deep breath. <laughs> which yeah, right. Which Psalms speak of the Messiah's rejections? There are many. Let me see how many verses this has. Um, wow, this is a long one. I'll tell you what, let me read through this and give just a brief commentary on this. Um, and, and by the way, folks, we, we are using some, some notes to, to help keep us aligned here. Um, the, as we mentioned before, the Moody Handbook on Messianic Prophecies. We're, we're going through this. We're giving the interpretations are our own, but we're still using some of their material. But uh, the Moody Handbook on, on Messianic Prophecy and Walter Kaiser's book, The Messiah in the Old Testament, are both excellent reads and highly recommend them. So we're using some of their resources to kind of help help keep guide us along. So let me read this real quickly. It's a long long um, psalm. The the next few, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna point to them. I'm not gonna read them all the way through but this one i'll go ahead and do right quick so give thanks to the lord for he is good now if anyone ever tells you that the bible the old testament doesn't say anything about god being good you can call him a liar because right there we read it give thanks to the lord for he is good his faithful <laughs> damn <laughs> and you know, by the way i didn't I didn't even think about it. That kind of goes to that that reaction we had to the the last. Anyhow, because <laughs> you know it, it's talking about divine justice and all this stuff. But look what we have here: Psalm one eighteen one. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good; His faithful love endures forever. Let Israel say, His faithful love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say. His faithful love endures forever. Get used to that because you're going to hear a lot. Let those who fear the Lord say, His faithful love endures forever. I called to the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and put me in a spacious place. The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. By the way, Romans 8.31 tells us, If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, that's something we need to remember. What can a mere mortal do to me? The Lord is my helper, therefore I will look to him and triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humanity. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in nobles. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. You may, makes you even kind of think of that hornet spray, spraying those bees off. Um, they pushed me hard to make me fall by the Lord, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. The Lord's right hand is raised. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. His righteousness, the, the righteousness will enter through it. I will give thanks. Oops. Uh, where did it go? Uh, I will give thanks to you because you have answered me and have become my salvation. Uh, the, the stone that the builders rejected. Now, here is the big one you need to remember. Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's in the New Testament. In fact, you see it in Luke 20, 17, Acts 4, 11, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 7. This came from the Lord. It is a wondrous in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. See, it didn't just say it one time, it said it multiple times. His faithful love endures forever. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So I wonder, and this is and this is something that I I, uh, I wonder if knowing kind of understanding how how Jesus was teaching at that time um when the rich young ruler came to him and said good good uh, good teacher 
And Jesus' reply was, good, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. <laughs> okay? Was he pointing at this psalm with that reply? It could have been, but Possibility. I, I think it's even deeper. Some people will, will even say to that uh, to that message that Jesus is, is pointing to the goodness of God and not to himself. While there may be some element to that, I think the, the question there he's presenting to them is deeper. Only one is good, and that's God. So how are you mm-hmm. understanding me? Are you calling me good, right. understanding that I am God come in flesh? Or are you saying, what good do I need to do to come to salvation? So th- there's even a deeper internal question involved in that. But yeah, I think that when you talk about um, the... Um, the goodness of God. This this psalm hits it, but but notice here something. This is something that Kaiser mentions. The structure of the psalm is best viewed as an antiphonal arrangement used as a processional hymn at an occasion such as the Feast of Tabernacles. That is the way both the Talmud and the Midrash understood it. Verses 1 through 19 are sung by the Levites and the priests as they joined in the worship of God. At verse 19, they stand at the entrance of the gate of the Lord. Verses 20 through 27 are sung by the ministering personnel who receive them. The arriving group sings 28, and everyone joins together in verse 29, which in chiastic fashion... now. Chiasms are, are, are kind of like shaped like a the uh, Greek letter key, which looks like our modern day X. It, it uh, the, the first part, like for instance, like say there's A B C D uh, or A B C. Let's see, A B C. A would resemble C, and B would be in the middle. And usually, the things in the middle are very important. Um, so. Verses 20 through 27 are sung by the ministering personnel. The arriving group sings 28. Everyone joins together in 29 in this chiastic fashion, repeats the call to thanksgiving. Thus, the call to give thanks opens and closes the psalm. Verse 19 contains its central focus, I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. But central is the stone spoken of in verse 22, which forms the, forms the object of praise for these worshipers. This is the object of praise. And notice it says, this stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone, that stone upon which the building of God is established. Mm -hmm. The people would reject him, but it would be that cornerstone that would be the very one that would build the foundation of God's salvation. Hmm. And what festival was that saying at? Just checking. <laughs> Feast of Tabernacles, it says. <laughs> and what did what did it say? Jesus came and tabernacled with us. God came and tabernacled with us. I'm going to leave it there. We got to move on. Ooh, so. wee, I'm telling you what. <laughs> it's getting good, folks. I love folks. pointing this stuff out, man. <laughs> I don't know if if y'all if if the listeners are joining in, in on this or not, but we're having church here tonight. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, buddy. Oh man, yeah. So, are there psalms that speak to the Messiah's betrayal? Yeah. So, one eighteen kind of speaks of the rejection of Messiah. You know, talking about that chief cornerstone that the builders rejected, but that would be used for the foundation. Psalm 69, we don't have time right now because we're getting close to the hour mark. Uh, I'm just going to kind of reference it. Psalm 19, though, is quoted more... This is what Kaiser says. Psalm 19 is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other psalm except for Psalm 110, which is quoted the most. And so who is it that's suffering here in this psalm? Um, and this has, what, something like 37 verses, I think. And he goes on to say, repeatedly, the suffer calls for God's help. And so let me go read all of this here. He says, um, Kaiser says, it is someone who is in great misery, needs help, as found in verses 2 through 5, has been put into these straits because of his zeal for God's service in verses 6 through 13. 
Repeatedly, the sufferer calls for God's help and assistance in verses 14 through 19 as his enemies add to his misery in verses 20 through 22. If only God would punish and destroy those malicious predators, we see in verses 23 through 29. But the end comes bright with hope, salvation, and deliverance as the sufferer thanks God for his help in verses 30 through 34 and invites all creatures to join him in praising God as the psalm concludes in verses 35 through 37. So that's pointing mm-hmm. to the betrayal of the of the Messiah uh, and ultimately in the redemption that comes. And this is, by the way, let me say, we're going to have a, a, a spring series around the time of Easter talking about psalms or prophecies pointing to the rejection of Messiah and his resurrection, and we'll get more into more detail. Uh, so th- we may actually come back to this psalm in that uh, spring series. Yeah, and we'll include a bunch of those uh, other psalms, like Psalm 22, Psalm 16, 68, 72, yeah, 40, and, and, 45. And Psalm 109, Psalm 109, yeah, 109. is a is a lament uh, David gives, and it presents uh, so strong implications, uh, impre- impre- implications in uh, in verses nine through six through nineteen. And this talks about the physical, social, spiritual persecution, uh, and this is pointed to the Messiah. But going back even to those men- that you mentioned, um, just real briefly, let me let me make a, a point here to say Psalms twenty two and sixteen will talk about the death and resurrection of Messiah. We'll get into that more deeply in the spring series. Psalm forty and forty five talks about the written plan of marriage of Messiah to his bride, who are the people of God. And that's Psalm 40 and 45. The triumph of the Messiah is seen in Psalm 68 and 72. We'll talk about that. Mm. And there's a lot more coming uh, in in that section. So, wow, we've got a lot of territory to cover in that spring series. By the way, let me also say that there are some interesting things when we get to that segment in uh, Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant that actually points to resurrection the resurrection of Messiah, and we'll get to that in that spring series. Yeah, yeah, and we'll be covering some of that um, as we get closer to um, towards the end of our little series right here. So, oh, absolutely, yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, we uh, we certainly enjoy kind of parsing this stuff out for you and making you kind of um, think and ponder and and look at some of this stuff. Um, just glorify God with this. I mean, this is. This is some big and deep stuff. So we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us. We value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and as a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christi podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, hold so your own, friends. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations, 
exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. <laughs>